You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Hey, Dan, were there ever any times in your teaching that you were advocating for your students? I feel it's really important for teachers to always let students know that they have their backs, right? To know that they're going to advocate for who they are, affirm who they are. But it, it's not always easy, as, as it sounds, right? I think it takes some, some real effort and learning. I always remember I was teaching, it was probably around 2006, 2007, when our school had started a gay-straight alliance. Some of the students wanted to start the group, and there was some resistance within the school. And I remember always trying to be supportive of the students, but as they faced resistance, and particularly as one of my colleagues who was teaching faced some backlash for being the sponsor of the Mm. club, I feel like the thing I could have done better is ask them what support they needed. I think I, I don't think I did that enough. And I think that's so important because often you don't know exactly what someone else needs. And so just asking them, how can I support you? I think was kind of the thing I reflected back on and wish I'd done a little more. You might assume that you, you should do this thing, but you don't know exactly what uh, would be helpful for them. Right. Right. And I, I, you know, I tried to make it clear the importance of just affirming who everyone was in our school. And I, I we had some discussions about it in our cl- my classroom. But um, yeah, I didn't take it. And, and I think go to the go to some of the students who I knew well, a number of the students who were starting the club and the my colleague who was the sponsor and just ask, what do you need to, to help you support support the group as you guys are starting? But they were a really great bunch and they got the group going. And I think they really changed a, a lot of perceptions about our a lot of our gay students in our school. So I've always found that the leaders of the LGBTQ clubs have been really helpful as resources whenever there are questions, whenever I'm, whenever I just want to know how to, you know, how to approach a situation. I found them just to be absolutely tremendous resources. So hopefully that people can reach out to, uh, you know, people who lead those clubs if they, you know, ever do have questions. Our students can teach us a lot sometimes, huh? That's true. Very true. So, and speaking of, we have two tremendous guests on today, and one of them was one of my students in a graduate class. You're kidding. Um, and I, I am, I'm not kidding at all. <laughs> we would like to welcome on Amber Burgle and Jean Vieve Mayette. Welcome, you two. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, today we're going to discuss how educators can support transgender students and teachers. And so, Amber, can you tell us a little bit about your background on this issue? Sure. Well, my background on this issue is that I'm the mother of a transgender third grader. Um, I have two kids, MG, who will be nine in February, and his little sister, Lulu, who's four and a half, so she hasn't started school yet. My son, MG, has always been more of a tomboy, and me being a feminist, I worked really hard for years and years. My husband and I both did on allowing Gracie, as he was known back then, to really fully embrace what it was like to be a gender non-conforming female. That just because, you know, he'd watch cartoons and see the commercials on TV and see all the toys that little girls played with, like those toys didn't seem interesting to, interesting to him. 
but that didn't mean that he was any less a girl, right? So for years and years, my husband and I, you know, worked on, worked on, you know, kind of giving him the space that he needed to, to really be anything he wanted to be as long as he was a girl, right? And, um, that worked for a number of years. I'd say about maybe five years or so. That was kind of our plan. But it was shortly before his seventh birthday when he was halfway through first grade that everything just shifted. And it was kind of, I don't want to say it shifted overnight. This was really, you know, from the age of two when he first told me he was a boy. And then at the age of four, when he asked if scientists could turn him into a boy, you know, to the age of almost seven, when I finally realized that there was really more going on here than than what I had originally anticipated. This this was a, a long five-year process, but it was it was really just shy of his seventh birthday when kind of things kind of all came to a head. And um and I sat him down and and we had talk. And you know, I, I had noticed the way he he was acting up in school and acting up at home. I noticed the way how when he came home after school, before he'd even say hello to me or pet the cats, he'd just run to the bathroom like he'd been holding it all day. And I finally put it all together. And I asked him, I'm like, sweetie, are, have you been, have you been going potty at school? And he's like, no. <laughs> and I'm like, we, you have to go to the bathroom. Like you're doing a pee pee dance. Your grades are slipping because <laughs> you can't concentrate. And, uh, and it was, so I, I took that opportunity in that conversation, you know, once I had kind of identified the physical nature of his discomfort, I took that opportunity in that conversation to kind of really delve into what I had suspected was really, really going on the whole time, which is that he, he's a boy. He prefers male pronouns. He doesn't want to be called my daughter. He prefers to be called my son. And if you see pictures of this kid, I mean, it's so clearly obvious he's a boy. He's, he's, he's not a, a tomboy at all. And I think that's a clear distinction that needs to be made because a lot of people will think, you know, that this is just a phase first off and that, well, you know, when my, you know, when my three-year-old son put on my high heel shoes, you know, to dress up like mommy, you know, I knew that that was just a game. And so, you know, we didn't entertain that after a certain age. And first off, this isn't dress up like the day after Halloween. You know, he stopped being a ninja zombie, but he didn't stop being a boy. The other thing that people don't understand is that that he's not a tomboy. Even tomboys identify as female. Even tomboys know that they're girls. I was very much a tomboy growing up and, you know, shooting and hunting and fishing and ice fishing in North Dakota where I grew up. And uh, but I always knew I was a girl. And there is a very clear distinction between being a transgender boy and being being a cisgender tom girl or tomboy and uh and i and i i think that's what's hard for people to understand that the transgender people exist and they've always existed and and you know your gender identity from a very very young age you know when when did i decide to be a girl i didn't decide that i just kind of always knew i was and i don't think mg decided to be a boy I think he just has always known that. And it took the rest of us that long to really, to really understand that, that this is a thing. I didn't know any transgender people before I, before I had my son, you know? So I think it just, it, that's why I say, you know, we transitioned as a family. It, it took us five years to transition. MG's always known who he was, but it took me as his mom five years to transition into understanding that this is, this is real. And this is authentic. 
And so since that's happened, you've really become not only an advocate for MG, but an advocate for transgender students in general or transgender community. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that um, you've been engaged in and done to um, help people better understand these issues? Yeah, you know, it's a really fine line between, you know, advocating for my son, as any parent would, and trying to kind of maintain some level of privacy, because I don't, I don't really want people to look at MG and see like, oh, there's that transgender kid, I want them to see him as just as MG, you know. But I'm not really one to sit down and shut up very easily. And so when I have felt that my baby bear has been threatened, my mama bear instincts come out and I'll shout it from the from the mountaintops if I need to, to protect him. And as a result, you know, we've been on the news several times. We invited Attorney General Ken Paxton over for dinner and he called my bluff and <laughs> came over with his security entourage and his wife uh, with the intention of, you know, just kind of showing him that there's nothing freakish or weird about my son and that we don't really appreciate him being in the middle of this political pissing contest, but he's he's just a kid. I don't know if we made a difference. I'd like to think that we did, but I, you know, when you're starting from rock bottom, you can only go up. So hopefully a seed's been planted, but, you know, seeds take time to grow. So we'll see when the Texas legislature reconvenes in the next couple of days, if, if, if we did make a difference. That, um, that meeting with Attorney General Paxton led to a phone call from the Human Rights Campaign inviting my husband and I to take part in the Transgender Parents for Equality Council. Trans, sorry, Parents for Transgender Equality Council. Uh, I've also worked alongside uh, Equality Texas on a number of issues, press conferences, and, and happy to talk to the press, you know, on, on camera and off. But the anyway, so HRC called us um, and invited us to be a part of this council, which is brand new and groundbreaking and, and very, very important right now. And then it was that uh, invitation to HRC, which <laughs> brought about an invitation to the White House recently. My family was invited to be guests at the White House in mid-December, which was a, a real honor and a real, a real treat to, to be there and to be recognized for our, our efforts for equality and for for fighting against basically legalized bullying. You know, these, these, these bathroom bills is, are essentially state sanctioned bullying, you know, made, made legal by our legislators. And, and I, I won't stand for that. And it was really quite an honor to be recognized by HRC and by the Obama White House for our, for our efforts on that. So that's kind of in a nutshell what we've been up to, but it's, it's really weird because this has all happened in like less than a year. I did a TED talk on this like last it was March 2016, and by September, the <laughs> the Attorney General of Texas was having dinner in my home, and by December, I was I was you know getting my picture taken with the president. So it's been really it's been really crazy. What was for dinner that night? Oh, uh, that that's a good question. Uh, we made uh, I made kebabs, um, I made blueberry cobbler, I made cornbread in the shape of Darth Vader. Kids love that. And cut up some watermelon. And um, Mrs. Paxson brought some yummy butter bars. And it was just, it was very homemade and very authentic. And I, I would say the only, the thing I was most nervous about wasn't making conversation, right? Because clearly brevity is not my strength. And he's a politician. <laughs> so he can talk. 
I wasn't worried about there being any awkward silences and I wasn't worried about him, you know, not enjoying my kid because what's not to love. He's awesome. I was honestly most worried about giving the attorney general accidental food poisoning because like the entire state was, was wondering what was going to happen at this meal. And the last thing I wanted was to send him home sick. <laughs> that would have been terrifying. Uh, that was the, what I was most nervous about, but it went, it went just fine. It was actually really, it was really chill. It was like, he's a real person and she's lovely and warm and he's very uh, soft-spoken and they seemed genuinely comfortable around our kids. And I don't think you can fake it around kids. I think you're, you're comfortable or you're not. And they, they seemed genuinely, um, comfortable and it was and we we had them over for like over two hours which is remarkable to have a dignitary to have a one-on-one time with someone of that uh, that level you know to your home for over two hours so i'm really hopeful that we made a positive impression and that he'll remember us when the texas legislature reconvenes in about a week it's you've been the the family that's been in the news so much in denton i feel like you guys are the face of denton nowadays um, <laughs> but, uh, I think, you know, everyone appreciates us, but it is what it is. So, <laughs> well, we appreciate uh, everything that you're doing and really Michael and I also are just trying to have guests on that get us closer to an invitation to the white house. That's <laughs> your, your guest number two, uh, Nate Bowling, episode 26. He got to meet uh, president Obama. We're waiting for our invitation for president Obama. We only have, uh, um, about 17 days before we're out of time. So he, we're hoping this podcast launches us quickly. Time's running out, yeah. <laughs> Jean-Vievre, would you tell us a little bit about your background and regarding transgender issues and in education? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. Um, first off, my story is not nearly as cool as hers, so <laughs> I apologize for being a little bit boring. I haven't done a TED Talk, but I would like to. As far as my background goes, I have a little bit of different perspective because Instead of instead of being the parent of a transgender child, I am the transgender child. I am the transgender person. You know, I came out when I was probably a little bit older in my twenties. Given this, I grew up in the eighties, so that wasn't something that was really uh, okay or actually talked about a lot. Often, it, it wasn't until like until the nineties when I started figuring out that even transgender was a thing, and that was you know using the old days, using the AOL dial-up and going on there and finding chat groups and meetups and things like that and talking to other people. For me, it wasn't until my 20s that I actually came out and understood who I was. And and at that time, I was actually working at a university here in, in, in Dallas. I won't say which one because uh, I ended up being fired from the university for coming out because they, they didn't want somebody such as myself uh, working for the state of Texas. So, and for me, it's just, it's just been a, a constant struggle, like in the education aspect as a student, because you have tons of anxiety and you always have these fears. You always have these fears that, you know, who's going to say something? What are they thinking? Why is everybody looking at me? Are they laughing at me? You know, okay, I have to go to the bathroom. Which bathroom do I go to? You know, are the teachers going to treat me fairly? Are they going to give, you know, are they going to grade me? more strict because I'm something different that they don't want to deal with. Do I have any allies here? You know, are there any teachers if something happened that I could go to? You know, will the police department at the university actually support me? You know, are there other students here that will help me? Am I the only, like, for example, when I started at, at, um, at school here, I kept looking around and I'm like, okay, am I the only transgender person on campus? Am I the only one? 
You know, so now I'm in a school of, say, you know, 10,000 people, and I'm the one. I'm that one transgender person. I'm that one transgender kid, adult, whoever, that sticks out on campus. And it makes it difficult because I feel like, as a transgender person, the pressure is on you to behave as best that you can and as relaxed as you can, no matter what anybody says to you, no matter how they treat you and, and how they talk to you. You have to sit there and just kind of be stoic and react in, in a positive way because I could be the one trans person that they've ever met in their entire life. And if I go off on some rant or some tangent, then they're going to say, well, you know what? I met a trans person once and this is how they, this is how they are. That's how those people are. And that's then all of a sudden we're stereotyped. And, you know, after that, then it's, you know, the whole community suffers because one person just got tired, like such as myself. I just get fed up of always having to be that way and not being able to react, but just kind of having to, to internalize all of that stuff so that way I can just kind of have a normal day. So it's it's tough. And going into education, I'm, I'm nervous. Um, even when I did my, my observation hours, I was nervous because I was hoping that the, you know, I went to a high school and I was hoping that the high school students would, would be fair, you know, that, that, that they would treat me fairly, that other teachers would treat me fairly, that I would be able to just be seen as that person in the room who's, you know, who's trying to be become an educator, not who's that woman or man or trans person that's in that corner, you know, what are they doing at our school and a, causing a stir. I think it was last year when Fort Worth had all those issues with the state. I went to to that, that meeting and, and I spent, honestly, I spent probably an hour and a half, two hours. I didn't get to go in, but I spent an hour and a half, two hours outside of the meeting talking to about 20 parents trying to explain to them about the effects of hormones and, you know, that transgender people, we're not looking for different rights. We're looking for equality because that's not, that's what we don't have. We're not treated as equals. We're treated as less than equals. But we're just trying to be, to become equal. Javier, can you tell us a little bit about what you think most people don't know, especially for our listeners who maybe don't know a lot about transgender people or students and haven't had the opportunity. What do you see as most common misconceptions and misunderstandings? Well, I think one of the mis big, larger misconceptions is the difference between sex and gender identity. You know, and I, the way I describe it is I'm like, sex is what's between your legs. Your orientation is what's in your heart and your gender identity is what's in your head. And that's how I always lead into a lot of conversations to make it as easy as possible for people to understand the difference between the three. A lot of people just, they just assume, well, for example, like I'm, I'm considered a lesbian. You know, I've always considered myself a woman. I like women. But for some reason that really bakes people's news. Mm -hmm. They're like, wait, you know, but you, your sex is this, you know, and it's like, well, it doesn't have to do with sex. It has to do with my gender identity. My gender identity is female even though I was born with male genitalia. So it was, that, I think to me, that's probably one of the biggest misconceptions I get. Um, that and another thing that always gets me is people don't ask for your pronouns. You know, even even if I'm wearing a dress and things like that, and I have my makeup done, people come up to me and they're like, well, how can I help you, sir? And I'm like, what about me, screams, sir? I'm like, is it the dress, the high heels, the makeup? I'm like, you know, so that's, I mean, that's one of the biggest things, no matter what, is trying to get people to see through they're which it's weird it's like people try to see what's a little bit underneath but still mm -hmm. on the surface they're not actually looking a little bit deeper than that they're kind of caught in a little medium and like well that looks like a guy even though they're wearing this so i'm just going to call them sir it's yeah it's kind of annoying and offensive right right and so um 
so a couple things that educators could do is, I mean, do you feel like you'd want a teacher to ask everyone to clarify what, what gender pronouns they preferred at the beginning of a class? Is that, would that be a way to kind of show um, affirmation or that, I guess just, yeah, show affirmation for different gender identities and expressions? Yes and no. The reason, I, I think that showing support is positive, and that's always going to be positive. The reason I say no is because you might put somebody on the spot who's not ready to say anything yet. So they might want to say, yeah, you know, I'm female, but you put them on the spot like that in front of everybody, you know, you open them up to being bullied because now they're going to like, oh, you in class, you said this, and you're really this. I kind of been thinking about it since I'm going into education and maybe the teacher like on the first day can say, look, I'm not going to tolerate bullying of any kind. You know, if I see something, I'm going to say something and letting up like letting people know whether they're LGBTQIA or they're different races or ethnicities or come from different countries that in that particular classroom, it's a safe zone and that they always have support. And that's I think that's probably the biggest thing is letting somebody know that they have an ally in you as an instructor or an educator that if something happens, they can come to you and you won't go and talk to the parents about something because there's a lot of students or there's a lot, excuse me, there's a lot of transgender people who are afraid to come out because they don't know, they don't know one, how their friends are going to react. They don't know how their colleagues, other students, they don't know how their family's going to react. It's something that, you know, until recently was, you know, had so much um, uh, anxiety and fear associated with it. You really couldn't come out because, you know, you could lose everything. Like, for example, when I came out, I lost my brother and my father. You know, I haven't talked to him in years now. And it's, you know, I had the same fear when I came out to, to my friends. It was like, I'm like, okay, I'm coming out to, you know, XYZ people. Who am I going to lose? You know, I'm losing somebody. I know that's for sure, but who's it going to be? You know, and some people that I didn't think I was going to lose, I did lose. And some people that I thought for sure would go away actually ended up sticking around and being my, you know, my big supporter. So it's, you should never really back any, any LGBTQIA person into a corner and, and make them choose, just give them the opportunity and, and show that you're, you're an ally and eventually they'll open up to you. And that's the biggest thing is allow them to open up to you. And then that's how you get a really good bond going with the person. But just, yeah, if you see something, say something and make sure it's like a bully free zone and, and you don't, you don't tolerate it in a classroom. I know at our school, um, we have uh, safe space stickers that, some of my students said that when they went to the high school and they saw those stickers, they felt so comfortable because they knew people who had those stickers were there to support them. I didn't think it was such a big deal to put that sticker up until hearing from this student talking about what it meant to her. Uh, what are some ways we can make our schools and classrooms more uh, supportive of the transgender community? I'd say as the, as the parents of an elementary school child, Something really simple that teachers can do is instead of asking all the children to line up boys over here and girls over there, why not try and find different ways to separate the children when you need to have, you know, two even lines? You know, if you like dogs over here, if you like cats over here, if you prefer vanilla ice cream, stand over here. If you prefer chocolate ice cream, stand over here. But, but asking the children to, to line up based on what the grownups are calling them when they might identify something different, I think can be really, really uh, harmful. Like I'm thinking MG might have years, years ago might have said, you know, I'm really a boy, but because we grownups kept categorizing him as a girl and saying, oh, you're just a tomboy. I don't think he really understood that it was 
allowable or acceptable or even possible for him to to be his authentic self because we kept putting him in the girl line and he kept going where we said he needed to go. You know, as a little kindergartner and as a first grader, you, you do as you're told in school. You know, you're not to that stage yet where you're really questioning authority like you like you maybe would as a as an older high school or college student. And so I think that would be one very simple thing that that educators of young children can do. Don't ask them to line up in the boys' line or the girls' line. Find a different way to to divide that group evenly without making them line up where they may not feel comfortable. And that's way more fun anyway, right? To line up. You can you could pick like content based stuff in your class. If your favorite amendment's the seventeenth amendment, go to this line. If your favorite, okay, that's a really bad one, isn't it, Michael? Um, yeah, that's. But, that's <laughs> or you could find a partner and then have them choose. Like, are you uh, a this or that? And then you know, depending on whatever, maybe it's vocabulary. In this way, yeah. you have even lines. That's a really great practical idea. Yeah, and it could be related to stuff. I mean, I taught high school, so I didn't make people get in lines very often. But just even for organizational purposes, it does it does make sense and not separating when you, for example, play a game or anything else like that into gender groupings. What, one thing I thought about is just also representations in the curriculum. You know, I think that's a problem for a lot of groups is not being represented at all. And, you know, uh, Michael and I are both social studies background, but it's uh, bringing attention and bringing stories in of, of transgender people throughout history because um, they have always existed. And and I think that is something that a lot of people don't get. Uh, Albert Cashier comes up a lot during the Civil War for, for people that actually teach about him. And he, Albert Cashier was a transgender man who fought for the Union Army and maintained that identity for the rest of his life. And uh, that story isn't told very often. Um, and it's a, it's a fascinating one. And there's a lot of uh, interesting historical stuff that surrounds it that is easy to get into. But integrating those stories helps students to understand that um, this isn't a new issue. It's just an issue that we're on some level, finally addressing in our society and after way too long of not doing so. What, what are some other practical things that, that you might have, advice you might have for parents to try to advocate, and particularly even maybe for parents who don't have transgender children? What are the types of things they could do to make sure that they're advocating for all the students in their school? What it was for me that kind of made me finally realize that this is, this is real. Let me back way up. So when MG said at the age of two that he was a boy, I said, no, honey, there's lots of different ways to be a girl. And here, let me show you. And I've always kind of followed his lead. I think any parent will tell you, we try our best to raise our kids, but really they're the ones that are raising us. They're, they're teaching us every day. And I just followed his lead. So I started doing research on like, you know, gender non-conforming kids, right? And then at the age of four, when he said, you know, can scientists turn me into a boy out of the clear blue sky? Like your little girl, when you're pulling into the driveway, shouldn't be saying things like that. Like where, where the hell is that coming from? But I listened, you know, I didn't shut that out. Like clearly this was, this came out of the blue. Like he's got something to say. So then I started researching gender creative kids, which kind of led me to some blogs about transgender people, which led me to some scientific articles. And I started reading things from psychiatrists and pediatricians and and just basically my advice to parents is just keep an open mind you know your child may not be transgender your child might be transgender but don't 
don't close that door on the possibility of, of that conversation happening at some point in the future. When, when I learned that 41% of transgender youth attempt suicide, don't consider it, but actually attempt suicide. When the national average for cisgender youth is closer to one to 4%, which is still tragic. Don't get me wrong, but that is, that is an epidemic. And they're attempting suicide because those that love them, that they love the most, they're, they're not getting the support from that circle and they, they need that. And then you combine that with the systemic discrimination that Jean-Bierre was talking about. What happens when you out yourself? Could you lose your job? Could you, could you lose your home? Could you lose your church? Could you lose your family? There's this systemic discrimination, which is which is why I'm fighting so hard to defeat these ridiculous bathroom bills that the Texas legislature is trying to pass. Like we've got bigger things to deal with than trying to figure out which bathroom my son should piss in. Give me a break. When, when you, when you combine that lack of support from family and friends and, and then add on top of that the systemic discrimination that trans people face every day, it's, it's no wonder that 41% of them attempt suicide. And when I, when I came to that realization, like, look, do I want, do I want a dead daughter or do I want a thriving son? That's really what it came down to. And, and when I look at him today, you know, he is just as miraculous and wonderful and precious to me today as he was on the day of his birth. It didn't matter to me when I was pregnant with him if I was having a boy or a girl. I just wanted a healthy child. And that's what I have. And so I guess if I could offer advice to parents, it's just to keep an open mind, follow your child's lead, do your research, and just embrace your baby for who they are. It doesn't matter if they're a boy or a girl. They could be, they could be fall somewhere in between too. I mean, we don't have to decide if they're a boy or a girl, but just love your baby. Love your baby up. It's not hard to love your kids, but it can be hard sometimes to to listen to them. And so my advice to parents would just be to, to listen, listen and have those conversations. jean Vienne, what are some things you would say as maybe even resources that people could seek out to gain support or to better understand how to support transgender students and teachers and people? There's a group that's called Transcendence. It started here in, in the Dallas area. I mean, they're starting to expand, but their website is uh, transcendent.org. And it's it's a fantastic group. And the reason I say it's a fantastic group and something that sets it apart is that they, they want the parents, children, friends, and family to show up. And then they, they sit this all in a room together, and that only happens for about an hour. But the hour after that, they actually separate the transgender people or the LGBTQIA people from the parents and from the cisgender people and allow them to have their own conversations separate from ours. So it helps them talk to other either parents or loved ones or family members or friends who have already gone through or in the process of maybe going through the same thing that they're same emotions that they're wrestling with themselves. So that like, I mean, that to me, that's a fantastic group. And there's groups like that all over the United States and almost every city and every town. I have to drive a little bit to get to them, but, but go to a group. And even if you don't have anybody there, just kind of go with an open mind and listen to what people have to say and listen to the stories that they tell. And, and think about if, if that's something that like try to put yourself in their, in their position and wonder like, you know, how would I feel if all of this stuff was happening to me? You know, like, how would I react? Would I want these laws to be passed against me? No, I wouldn't. 
Would I want to be bullied all the time? No. Do I want to be called the wrong gender? No, I do not. You know, do I want it, the healthcare system to be stacked against me so I can't get healthcare coverage? No, I wouldn't want that. And to start showing some empathy and some compassion for, for other people, not only for other people, but for your children as well, because they're, you know, you're going through a tough time trying to accept them, but you have to remember that they're going through a tough time as well, trying not only to accept themselves, but to come out to you and trust you by telling them all of their emotions and all of their feelings. And, and, and they're, you know, when I came out, I was, I was a hot mess. I was so worried. I had so much anxiety and, you know, I didn't know where my future was going to be. I didn't know, you know, who I was, where I was going, if who was coming with me, who I was leaving behind, you know, what was going to happen, you know, and I, and I, I ended up losing a job and a lot of family members. So it was, it, it's, it's tough. I mean, it's tough, but yeah, I mean, like, there's a lot of transgender groups on Facebook. There's a lot of uh, local groups and communities that you can you can go to and that you can be a part of. You know, listen to listen to what people have to say. Listen to what people within the community have to say, and don't be afraid to ask questions because you know you don't have all the answers. And there's nothing wrong with saying I don't know. Please explain it to me, and just don't make assumptions about large swaths of people because the transgender community as a whole, you know, we're not bunch of bad people we're just people that want to live our life you know most of us are just you know when we go to the restroom for example we're just going to the restroom we don't we don't care what's going on within the restroom we don't care what's going on in the stall next to us myself i'm usually playing i'm either texting somebody or playing some form of game on my on my <laughs> phone while i'm going to the restroom because <laughs> i'm just like okay you know i guess i got nothing to do so i'm just going to sit here and go to the restroom but, it's a you know, it's a conversation another conversation we don't have enough right how our yeah. phones have changed our bathroom activities um, <laughs> right <laughs> I get a lot more articles read I'm gonna be honest <laughs> okay maybe our listeners have heard enough about that <laughs> they don't want to know about my uh, uh, what I'm reading when I go to the bathroom no I don't think they my- do. <laughs> Amber did you have a conversation with your son's teachers when MG came out when MG transitioned how do I ask that is it transitioned? Yeah, I mean, you can say he's socially transitioned, but like I said, I think we're the ones as his parents that transitioned. He's always known who he was, but he kept calling himself Gracie, the girl, because those were the words that we were using. And as a as a small child, you you do as you're told, right? I don't so, think he understood. I don't think he understood that there was a different way of of identifying. John V. Ever, are you going to answer that? Um, I was going to say, I was quite honestly, I would say instead of saying transitioned, I would say transition because with ED, it kind of sounds like it's transition. a. Right. Yeah, it sounds like it stopped because, you know, for example, I've been transitioning for, for quite some time. I've already, I've gone through and had surgical transition, but now I'm back on a, now I'm going back to another mental transition after that surgery because before I was set and I was like, okay, this is who I am and still kind of the same person, but now I'm like, now I'm on the other side because I've had the surgeries, and now it's like now I'm readjusting again. I'm still tra- I'm still in the process of transitioning, so it's it's a constant physical, mental, physical, mental. It's just kind of it's more of a roller coaster as opposed to a start stop kind of thing. That's a good point. But to answer your question, Michael, that conversation. So as I said in the, at the start, you know, I had noticed the way that Gracie at the time something had just really shifted in my child. And it was around that same time that his uh, first grade teacher, who was a first year teacher, I might add, called my husband and I and said, can we have a meeting about Gracie? And I was like, oh Lord, what has this child done? Because that, that he is a very 
He's a very sweet, considerate, polite, articulate, intelligent, popular boy. I could not figure out what in the world would this child have done that requires a special meeting with his teacher. This was shortly before Christmas. And, uh, and he sat us down. He's like, you know, I've just, and I'm going to use female pronouns here because that was the language that we use in this conversation. But he said, you know, I've just noticed the way how Gracie won't line up when it's time to uh, move to the next activity. I've noticed how she's squirreling around on the carpet, can't sit still. She's having a hard time concentrating in school. And I just, I kind of, it's, it's kind of normal behavior for a first grader, but just kind of out of the ordinary for her. And my husband and I said, well, it's almost Christmas. We're going to go to Colorado. You know, we're going to go see the grandparents. And so she's probably just hopped up on sugar and adrenaline. But then at Christmas came and went, those uh, behaviors persisted. And in fact, they kind of amped up at home. My child was more irritable, more aggressive, more disobedient, and just not, not himself at all. And it was around that time when I had noticed his bathroom behavior after school. He could not wait to go to the bathroom. He wouldn't, he, I mean, he wouldn't get a snack. He wouldn't pet the cats. He would just dash to the bathroom like he'd been holding it all day. And I was like, huh, I think I know what's going on. And, and if you were to look at this child, if you were to see even his kindergarten picture, clearly, clearly looks like a boy, clearly. But because we as his parents kept saying, you know, you line up in the girls' line, Gracie, because you're my daughter, that's what Gracie did. That's not what MG wanted to do. That's what Gracie did. So I sat him down. I said, sweetheart, are you using the bathroom at school? And he said, no. And I was like, well, why not? And he's, he's like, well, because if I go in the girl's bathroom, then the people who don't know me tell me that I need to go in the boy's bathroom, right? Because of the way he looked. And if I go in the boy's bathroom, then the people who do know me tell me I'm in the, the wrong bathroom and they make me go in the girl's bathroom. He's like, I just don't know which one to use. This broke my heart. And I was like, well, sweetheart, there's a solution. You can, you can use the nurse's bathroom. He's like, no, I can't. No, I can't. That's only for the nurse. I'm like, no, no, no. This is, that is what the nurse's bathroom is for. So I emailed his teacher and his principal that evening. And I said, oh, let me back up too and say that it was at this time when I, finally broached that subject that I had that had been percolating in the back of my brain all these years. And I said, okay, well, we're going to find you a solution for the bathroom. I said, and as long as we're at it, do you not want me to call you Gracie anymore? And he's like, no, I want to be called MG, which is short for Mary Grace. And I said, okay, we'll, we'll call you MG. I said, do you not want to be my daughter anymore? Should I call you my kid or my son? He's like, I want to be your kid, right? So he was kind of more gender neutral, like transitioning, right? As jean Vian said, in, in the process of this. And uh, and I said, okay, you know, but what about like she and her? Should we be using he and his? He's like, yeah, 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 we should do that. So I, so I just followed his lead. So I emailed his principal and his teacher. That was a Sunday night. And I said, this is, this is what's going on. I think I understand now why Grace is acting up in school. He would like to be called MG, and starting tomorrow, we'd like to use the nurse's bathroom. This was a Sunday night, and his principal emailed back within five minutes. Using the correct terminology, she said, send MG to my office in the morning. I have a solution for him. Right away, we got that support. And, and so Monday started, and he went to school and started using the nurse's bathroom, and that was a solution for that year. 
We are no longer using the nurse's bathroom, though the school district has told us that that is where he needs to go. And I said, thank you for that option. And they said, it's not an option. And I said, yeah, thank you for doing your job. I'm going to do my job as his mom and let him know that's an option. So that was the solution for us that year. He went to school on Monday and uh, started going as MG. And all of his friends were like, no fair. I want to be called by my initials too. I want to be a, (laughs) you know, GR. I want to be. And so the kids just thought that was really cool. His friends that year had a hard time switching from she to he because they, you know, they, they really, they didn't care. I mean, they, kids, kids, kids give zero Fs about any of that. Like they just wanted to race them to the end of the playground and back. Like they, they did not care. It was the grownups making a big deal about this. So, you know, he changed his name. It was hard for his friends to transition to he and his that year. Um, but over time and through practice for all of us, even as his mom, I screwed that up the first couple of months, you know, stop and you pause and you apologize and you correct yourself and you move on. And over time, uh, his friends have gotten the hang of it. And he hasn't, as far as I know, he hasn't lost any friends. He's, he, we have sleepovers like any other third grader. He gets invited to pool parties. He's just a regular kid. He's just a regular kid and he's awesome. That's awesome. Have you had to deal with fellow parents at all who've had negative reactions? Yeah. So MG hasn't lost any friends. I've noticed there are some friends of mine that don't come around as much anymore. I do notice who posts to and likes my Facebook posts, maybe about my daughter and maybe doesn't comment or like my posts about my son. I have noticed that, but honestly, I I haven't come across much hate mail from my my circle of friends not to say it's not out there i certainly have received my fair share of hateful comments online and and offline from people who have never met us but you know you kind of grow a thick skin and you're like it's not it's not really about you it's about my son and i'm doing the right thing for him i don't know what other parents have said whatever they're saying they're not saying to my face which is probably for their own personal safety a good idea (laughs) (laughs) but no it's honestly I'll say all things considered, I know that we are very fortunate. I know that this isn't the average experience of the transgender family. I recognize that fully. And especially the fact that we live in Texas, I think is remarkable that we have gotten as much support as we have. I think part of that is just knowing how to speak your truth. Even when you're, even when your voice shakes, I think you just speak up anyway. And haters going to hate, but you just got to be the mama bear that you are. I think part of that is the fact that we live in Denton, which has two major universities and is in a, a metropolitan area, I think helps, gives us more of a cosmopolitan feel um, than maybe other Texas communities. But I'll say that this is, this is a large reason why my husband and I have chosen to spoke out so loudly about this issue is because we understand this is not the average transgender family experience. And because we are secure in our circle of friends, because we are fairly respected in town, we want to use this place of privilege to speak for those who can't speak for themselves. There's many people that would like to speak up, but for fear of being outed, 
um, and discriminated against choose to keep their mouths shut. And, and I can't blame them. Like they are, they are trying to protect their safety. And so we're, we're doing what we can to not only advocate for our child, but for the children of, of transgender families across the state and across the country for better, for worse. I, mean, I don't know if we're, I, I'd like to think that we're being effective and helpful. <laughs> you, you are. I think I, I really would like to commend you because I think sharing your story, some people, it's the first story they know of someone in their community who has a transgender child or they know of, of someone who's transgender. So I think sharing your story is very powerful um, and educational too. And, you know, I think in all of this for educators, the thing is, is that we know in education that that students have to be in a good place to be able to learn in schools and you have to support them and who they are, no matter who they are, you know, if you want them to learn, because if, if they don't feel, I mean, right, it goes back to probably Maslow's hierarchy, right? If they don't feel comfortable with their, their own safety, physical safety, mental safety, then they're not going to learn. And so this is an educational issue. Um, while it's also a human rights issue, it's an educational issue. And so I don't think as educators, anyone should have a choice on this. This is something we have to do is make sure everyone's supported in our schools. And so I, I think as we finish up, Jean-Vivre, do I start with you? Any final kind of thoughts on advice for educators? Then we'll go to Amber. I think finding a way to to make it more of a, a approachable topic in the classroom and making it something that's more acceptable to talk about and not, uh, and not create a, a stereotype or a phobia about topics. And, and allowing students to actually ask questions and making sure that educators themselves ask questions because you, you might get into a situation where you, you don't know the answer. And as opposed to giving some flippant answer, take the time and say, okay, you know what? Let me get back to you because I'm not sure. I don't know. Let me get an answer for you. So just having, as an educator, having a classroom that's open to discussion that, that doesn't allow bullying and that the educator themselves, when, when they see something, that's considered bullying that they need to say something, whether to that student, to that, to the parent of that student to say the, you know, the principal in the school, but they definitely need to, to stand up for other people. I don't know. That's all I have for at the moment. I'm kind of a little kerfuffled. No, that's, I mean, that's great advice. I really appreciate it. Amber. Yeah, I think there's several things educators can do starting at a very young age. I think, and of course now I'm just speaking as parent of an almost nine year old. I think, as I said before, maybe not asking, dividing the children into smaller groups based on boy versus girl, but finding more creative ways to break down those numbers so you, you know, you can have those two even lines with, without asking children to choose in that moment, boy or girl, because they're going to line up where they've been told to line up anyway, right? So finding more creative ways to divide the classroom. I think also teaching kids you know, that there, there is more than one way to be a boy. There is more than one way to be a girl. So when that little boy comes to your classroom and he's wearing his brand new My Little Pony light up Velcro sparkle shoes, y'all got to praise that boy. That my Who doesn't love My Little Pony? They're colorful. They're happy. <laughs> they fit his feet. So, of course, they're his shoes. There's more than one way to express being a boy. There's more than one way to express being a girl. You can feel like both at the same time. You can feel like neither. And I think breaking down those gender stereotypes from a very young age, breaking down, you know, boys, blues for boys and pink is for girls, breaking that down 
and getting kids to think outside the box that there's lots and lots of ways for us to dress and act and identify and it does not diminish whatsoever who we are, our authentic selves. And I think as kids get older, you know, being that safe space for them, my kids spend more time during their waking hours at school than they do at home. And, and if a child cannot be themselves at home, if they can't come out to their parents as gay or queer or trans, if they can't come out at home because it's not a safe space, let school be that safe space because that's where they're spending the bulk of their hours anyway. That's where they're, they're finding their way as young adults and, and being that safe space for that kid, giving them that space to express themselves fully and just supporting who they are like you would support any of your students, I think can be a really, really powerful and, and it could save a life. Wow, this has been a really um, educational and, and important episode. So thank you two so much for for joining us. Um, where can our listeners find your work or any resources you guys have online or connect with you to ask questions? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Mrs. Briggle. Um, and at the top of my Twitter feed is a link to the TED Talk that I did uh, in March 2016 about this issue. It was the first time I spoke publicly about this. And so things have maybe kind of evolved since then, but it's, uh, I think it's a good start for, for maybe cisgender allies like myself who, who just want to be able to support and advocate their, their children or their friends or their coworkers. I think might be a good start. It's, it's an incredible Ted talk. Everyone should watch it. Um, it was, it was my favorite one. I told you that when it happened, it was my favorite one at an incredible event with a lot of good Ted talks. It was really well done. So Jean-Vier? Yeah, you can actually find me on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at Gregarious Jen, um, a safe place to get answers and more. I and mean, basically, when you go on there, you'll see I have various emails that you can that you can use to contact me. And also, I, t- I try to create videos about discussion topics, whether it's about qu- which pronouns to use or personal stories and, and just kind of share pieces of me or what I've seen in society that helps the non, non-LGBTQIA people out. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. We hope to continue this discussion online and other places. And I know for me, there's still questions that, I, that I'm that i kind of developing, but I know that I can reach out to the two of you to get those questions answered. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for uh, having us. And Amber, it was a pleasure meeting you. And thank you for all the wonderful information. So uh, we're all about sharing the learning at the Visions of Education podcast. You can tweet us at Visions of Ed if you're doing something creative education or if you want to share your story. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to us at Visions of Education on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And if you write us a five-star review, we will sing it right on the air. I'm upping <laughs> Michael, the empty. Yeah, <laughs> you have to sing it. I'll, uh, I'll listen to it. That's what we'll do. <laughs> you, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast signing off.